This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. In today's lecture, we're really going to be focusing on music in particular. So music is powerful because it has been found in every human society on the planet. The oldest musical instruments have been, were found 43,000 years ago, predating even visual arts. So music is everywhere. Throughout history, music, in addition to the arts and other humanities, have been a mechanism for healing and resilience. And I suspect that is because music has the capacity to connect us with one another, to engage our emotions, and because music activates every part of our brain. It is biologically powerful. And as scientists, we are finding that creativity is a really unique, distinctive biological process. And that's what I study and research, the neuroscience of musical creativity. So in today's course, we have several course objectives. To start, we want to understand how do we hear? How does sound get from our ears to our brains? How can we use neuroimaging techniques like functional magnetic resonance imaging to study musical creativity? And what are the neural areas of the brain that are involved in musical improvisation? I can tell you that this field of uh, research looking at the neuroscience of creativity is a very new field, only about 15 years old, but I'll show you what we've already discovered. And then finally, I'm gonna show you where can we find information about music and health. And most importantly, I want to let you know that these last three bullets are all big experiments and research projects that are taking place here at UCSF. So let's go ahead and dive straight in. To start off, I want to tell you about how sound gets from the ear up to the brain. In the next slide, you're gonna see a video that describes this in more detail, but here's a quick overview of how hearing works. First, sound strikes the eardrum, which vibrates at the same frequency as the sound. The eardrum connects to the ossicles, which are these three small hearing bones, which transmit these vibrations to the oval window. Now, this system of the eardrum and the ossicles creates a much more forceful vibration than the initial sound wave. And this transformation is important because the inner ear over here is filled with fluid and you need more force to transmit a vibration through liquid than through ear, air. As the stapes pushes the oval window in, fluid within the inner ear pushes the window out. And within the cochlea, auditory transduction happens. And that's where the ear converts sound waves into electrical impulses. These electrical impulses travel from the auditory nerve all the way up to the brain, where we can interpret this as sound. You'll see this described in more detail over here in this video. Ears are constantly active. They pick up sound waves and change them into information that the brain can interpret, such as music or speech. Sound is a pressure wave that can vibrate either quickly or slowly. Slow vibrations produce deep sounds while quick vibrations produce high-pitched sounds. Sound enters the ear and is directed through the ear canal where it first reaches the eardrum. As the eardrum begins to vibrate, it sets the ossicular chain in motion. The ossicular chain consists of the hammer, anvil, and the stirrup. Sound vibrations move along the ossicular chain and into the inner ear. Within the inner ear, the cochlea plays a central role. It is here that the mechanical energy of sound is converted into complex electrical signals, which are then passed on to the brain. In simplified terms, the cochlea is a spiral-shaped tube filled with fluid, 
sensory cells, also called hair cells, line the entire length of the cochlea. These hair cells have varying degrees of sensitivity for the detection of different tones or frequencies. This allows the ear to perceive the entire spectrum of sound. The change from mechanical vibration to electrical pulse is a complex process resulting from the movement of hair cells in the cochlea. Along the entire length of the cochlea, the hair cells are arranged like the keys of a piano. Hair cells located at the base or lower region of the cochlea are responsible for high frequency, while hair cells at the apex are responsible for the low frequencies. As the fluid in the cochlea is set in motion, it causes a corresponding movement of the fine structures on the surface of the hair cells to take place. These movements cause tension differences which produce electrical signals that are passed along the hearing nerve to the brain. The auditory cortex of the brain interprets this information as sound, for example as music or speech. The entire chain of events, including the various steps that convert sound waves from the environment into information that the brain can interpret, happens so fast that individuals can hear sound both continuously and instantaneously. Now once that information goes up the auditory nerve, music and sound is processed in an ascending pathway going from here all the way up through various stations to the auditory cortex up here in the brain. And sound is processed at each station. Now what's really important about music in the brain, and it's a question I get asked a lot, is whether there's um, a single music center. And the big answer is no, there is no single music center in the brain. Aspects of music are processed in various areas of the brain. So for example, um, pitch and tambourine pitch um, are all processed in the temporal lobe or the auditory cortex of the brain. Things like rhythm are processed in the cerebellum of the brain. Things like emotion are processed in the limbic system, which are in the deep core part of the brain. So here's another figure. Um, popular media has recently been focusing on how all the multidimensional aspects of music listening. So if you see news sources like The Atlantic or The New York Times or BBC News, they often pick up stories about music in the brain. So this is not a real academic figure, but it helps to interpret the findings from research in a news format. And again, this is just, again, showing how multidimensional music is. As I said before, we had shown that the cerebellum is involved in rhythm, but here's the visual cortex, and you can see that it's involved when you're trying to read music, the hippocampus involved in musical memory, uh, the sensory cortex is involved in tactile feedback if you're playing an instrument. As I said before, of course, the auditory cortex is involved in perceiving tones and pitch. The motor cortex is involved in playing an instrument. The prefrontal cortex is involved in expressions and decision-making. So really the most important thing is that music is processed all over the brain. And this is what I meant when I said that music activates all parts of our brain. It involves every aspect of your brain. So now that we've talked about how music gets from our ears and up into our brain, I want to introduce you to some of our lab's research here at UCSF. I work for the Sound and Music Perception Lab at UCSF, which is run by my mentor, Dr. Charles Lim. We study musical improvisation, which is the spontaneous creation of music. Basically, it's real-time musical creativity. Now, while artistic and musical creativity may seem like this very magical process, it's actually a neural process that can be examined using rigorous scientific methods. 
Today, I'm gonna to go over some of our lab's previous fMRI studies of creativity. I'm gonna start with Charles's first professional uh, study of jazz musicians, his 2008 paper looking at professional jazz musicians and what happened in their brains when they were doing solo improvisation. Then I'm going to look at a follow-up study looking at collaborative improvisation and what happens in the brains of musicians when they, when they are working together and improvising. Then I'm going to talk about my current in-progress experiment, which is looking at the brains of children who are musically untrained and looking at what happens when they try to improvise. And then finally, I'm going to talk about a large-scale project that's funded by the National Endowment for the Arts, looking at improvisation across art forms. So before we start, I think first we need to talk about what is functional magnetic resonance imaging, or fMRI. fMRI basically uses blood oxygen level dependent imaging. Essentially, fMRI looks at the change in neurons or brain cells oxygen consumption as an indicator of neural activity. As you can see here by this picture, the fMRI scanner is spatially restricted. And so that makes it ergonomically challenging to try to get musicians to actually play music in a scanner. Not only that, but the scanner is magnetic and it is very noisy, it misses constant noise. And so you can imagine that it is pretty challenging to try to do studies about music. But despite the challenges of performing music in an fMRI scanner, we have developed ways to scan jazz musicians as they're performing. In one of our first experiments from the lab, we took expert jazz musicians while they did a, task, a control task where they were performing overlearned or pre-memorized music, as opposed to an experimental task where they were improvising and this therefore was doing a more generative activity. Essentially, the control task involved uh, playing this pre-memorized piece that Charles wrote. It was a 12 bar blues and they had to memorize it and then just come to the scanner and play this piece. We gave a backtrack that gave the tempo and, the, and they just played this piece from memory. Then in the experimental block, they had to improvise. So we gave the same backtrack, same tempo, but now they were allowed to improvise and just play whatever notes they wanted above the same chord structure and uh, tempo. Now, to study jazz in an fMRI scanner, we had to make a custom-made non-metallic keyboard, which you're going to see in the next slide. In this video, you're going to see Charles Lim, again my mentor, explaining the experimental setup. And as you'll see, he's going to show you what our keyboard looks like, as well as how you play in the scanner. So this is a plastic MIDI piano keyboard that we use for the jazz experiments, and it's a 35 key a keyboard that is designed to fit both inside the scanner, be magnetically safe, have minimal interference that would contribute to any artifact, and have these cushions that it can rest on the player's legs while they're lying down in the scanner, playing on their back. And it works like this. This doesn't actually produce any sound. It sends out what's called a MIDI signal, or a musical instrument digital interface, through these wires into the box of the computer, which then trigger high-quality piano samples like this.
as you can see, while Charles was lying in the scanner, that first piece that he was playing was the control piece. That was the piece that he had pre-memorized. And then he was improvising. So that was the, then he was just making up melodies based on the same chord structure. Now, what do we find? Well, improvisation, as compared to the control condition was pre-memorized, showed a really distinctive pattern of both neural activation and deactivation. So irrespective of what happened with the improvisation, there was a deactivation of lateral, dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, shown here in blue. And this deactivation of the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex is thought to be associated with a decrease in self-monitoring and judgment. At the same time, improvisation was also associated with an activation of the medial prefrontal cortex, which is thought to be associated with an increase in self-expression. So really, improvisation has this very unique pattern. It's both deactivation of certain areas like the dorsal prefrontal cortex and activation of the medial prefrontal. So what this seems to show is that in jazz, solo improvisation is a goal-directed behavior, and that might be why you have this increase in activation of the medial prefrontal cortex. That may occur in the absence of the context normally and maybe that's why you have the deactivation of the labs, leading to a defocused form of attention that may encourage spontaneous associations and sudden insights. Now, we think these are the neural correlates of improvisation, but we also think that this might be what happens with the um, entrance into a state of flow. And flow has been described as this optimum state of really heightened enjoyment and creativity and focus. Now, that first study looked at what happened in solo improvisers, but we really want to know what happens in the brain when improvisers are collaborating. So in the next follow-up experiment, we, used an, um, we asked the question, what are the neural correlates of musical exchanges of improvised materials? We used an improvisation method called training fours, and it's a pedagogical technique in jazz where one player starts by playing four bars, and then another partner plays another four bars, and they go back and forth, trading four measures like that, back and forth in a musical dialogue. Now, in our experiment, what happened is there was a participant who was lying in the scanner who starts off by playing for bars, and then a, the researcher who's outside the scanner in a control room plays for four bars, and then it goes back to the, the participant who's lying in the scanner. And so they keep going back and forth, playing together, and switching off every four measures. I want to show this to you in a video, which will make it a little bit clearer. Mike Pope was one of our participants. He's an experienced jazz musician, and he's going to be the participant in the scanner playing for four bars. And then Charles will be outside in the control room responding every four bars, and you'll see them going back and forth in a musical dialogue. This is a pretty good representation of, of what it's like. Um, and it's good that it's not too quick. You know, the fact that we do it over and over again lets you acclimate, you know, to, to your surroundings. So now, in this study, we found a slightly different pattern of brain activity than what we found in the solo improvisation study. Uh, in this study, improvisation is associated with activation in sensory motor areas, shown here in green, right here, sensory motor areas, but also activation of language areas, such as the inferior frontal gyrus and the superior temporal gyrus. 
Now, that's not too surprising because in this experiment, collaborative improvisation was a language like musical exchange. And so it's not too surprising that you activate language areas which reflect the language like um, um, activity of this musical dialogue. Now, what happens though, if you have no musical training, our previous studies were on jazz experts, highly trained jazz experts. Our current study, though, is looking at musically untrained school-age children. And these were 9 to 11-year-old kids that were not musicians that we tested in the scanner. We basically created a, uh, a paradigm based on the pentatonic scale, which are the five black note keys of the keyboard. So for the control task, what they had to do is all they had to do is play the notes of the pentatonic scale, which is all the five black note keys, and we gave them a backtrack which gave the rhythm and the tempo a certain speed. And then for the improvisation task, all they had to do is give them the same backtrack, which was gave the rhythm and the tempo, they were now allowed to improvise um, using just the black note keys of the keyboard so they could play what those notes in whatever order they wanted. Now, the beauty of this design is that with the pentatonic scale and the backtrack we provided, it always sounds good. You couldn't make a mistake in that you always sounded musical. So this encouraged the children to really dive into the experiment. And this was really important because, as I said, these children had no experience. Many of them had never even seen a keyboard. Now, if I were doing this in, in uh, person and not during the pandemic, I would have one of you participants come up and try this with me. But since I don't um, and can't do that in person, I have my lovely husband here. Come say hi. hi. <laughs> this is my husband. He's in my pod. And so he's going to try to demo this for you. Now, I have to give you a caveat, which is that my husband is actually a conservatory claimed, uh, trained class, uh, classical cellist. But he is a beginner pianist. <laughs> so, no, he can do this. So he's going to demo this. What you can't see is we have a keyboard here hooked up to my computer. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to play the backtrack and he's going to demo and play the keyboard. So as if he were a real subject um, in our study. So we're not sticking him in the scanner, but he's going to play the piano. So first we're going to play the control. So again, he's just playing the five black note keys and he's just going to play the scale up and down. Okay, here we go. Scale. condition so again same rhythm same tempo same backtrack but now he is allowed to make up melodies play the black note keys in whatever order he wants all right ready well okay here we go improvise supposed to do one hand but pretty good <laughs> so thank you honey <laughs> so that's how the experiment was going to go and this is and after this we would have put that we would have done this in the fmri scanner 
Now, what have we found? So here are some pictures of us working with the kids. And actually, because these are nine to 11 year old children, it's obviously pretty difficult to work with them. But with a lot of um, encouragement, we got them to do it. Uh, we pretended and we were had them in the fMRI scanner that they were being astronauts. In, in the scanners so that helped calm them down. We also did a lot of training with them outside the scanner. So before they even went in the fMRI machine, they would play the MIDI keyboard outside the scanner. Again, because many of them had never even seen a keyboard before, they were musically untrained. We also taught them how to lie still so that they could lie really still in the scanner. Uh, what I would do is I would play the statue game. So I would have them lie on their backs and I would put a Lego on their head. And every 30 seconds, I would add another Lego on their head. And if they got up to three Legos on their forehead and they kept them on their head really still, showing them how still they need to lie to get a really clear picture in the FRI machine, they got prizes. And then finally, at the end of all this, if they got did the whole experiment, they got a bunch of toys from the treasure chest. So they got rewards in addition to being paid for their participation. Now, what we found, and this is just preliminary data analysis because it's still um, being written up, is that in children, we see slightly different things than what we saw to our adults. We do have, again, that see that improvisation compared to the control task is both about um, deactivation shown in blue and activation shown in red. But it's really mostly about deactivation. We see deactivation of limbic areas, which are involved in emotion and reward processing. And we also see deactivation of parietal areas, which is involved in sensory motor areas. Now, we also still see this deactivation of the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, but it is less than what we see in our adult jazz musicians. Now, we're not sure if that's because they're children, which makes them younger than adults, or if it's because they're untrained. Remember, they've had no musical training, whereas our previous experiments used jazz experts. So we're not very sure, but it's still some really interesting results. And it shows that even with no training, you don't have to be an expert. You can still improvise and you can do this in the scanner. Now I'm going to move on to a large-scale project that we're doing that is funded by the National Endowment for the Arts. We are one of their research labs. And for this large-scale study, we are asking a research question, which is what are the neural correlates of improvisation across art forms? And specifically, we are studying eminent musicians, um, visual artists, and comedic improvisations. And for this study, and today for today's class, because we're limited in time, I'm mostly gonna just be focusing on eminent musicians as case studies. For this study, again, we have the paradigm of using fMRI where we're looking at um, control blocks where we have them performing rote or more pre-memorized, pre-learned activities as exposed to experimental blocks where they're doing more improvisatory or generative activities. But we've also added some other things, which is the cognitive test battery where we have an assessments and questionnaires of creativity, cognitive skills, and personality. So we've added some things to that. Now let's get into this new element, which is the test battery. And the test battery has a lot of different tests and skills that we're looking at. For example, working memory and attention. We're also assessing crystallized IQ, which is basically knowledge based on acquired experience and learned knowledge. We're also testing fluid intelligence, which measures uh, reasoning, noticing new patterns, logic. We're doing assessments of personality. We also have a mini creativity test battery, which is measuring skills like divergent thinking, which is your ability to brainstorm a ton of ideas. We're also measuring convergent thinking, which is kind of the opposite, where you have a bunch of seemingly unrelated things and trying to find the connection that links all those seemingly unrelated ideas. And then we have questionnaires of imagination, artistic achievement, and of course, demographics. 
And throughout all of this, we have a technical working group for this National Endowment for the Arts uh, project, which is that we have a bunch of experts in the field which, who give us advice about this whole project. Now, as I said, because of time, we're going to focus just on the mu musicians, but something that Charles and I are very, very interested in is for the eminent musicians, we want to look at them as case studies because we really want to know what is creative genius. Well, many of the past experiments, not only from our lab, but from other labs, have looked at groups of musicians and we took all of their brain data and averaged it all together. We thought that it would be interesting to look at eminent musicians and look at them as case studies. And so what that means is looking at each of their brains as a single data point. So for our project for the National Endowment for the Arts, we're testing world-class musicians as case studies. So that means that we get to take experimental tasks and tailor them specifically to the talent of each artist. At the same time, we're also doing a case series where hopefully each artist completes a common paradigm so we can try to see what's common among all the artists as well. Now, taking this approach to doing case studies obviously has both opportunities and challenges. The opportunities are, as I said, we really love getting to tailor um, the task to the artist because we highly believe that each artist has a unique voice. After all, we don't really aspire to go to mediocre concerts, right? We really love going to see concerts because they're fantastic and they, each artist has a very unique voice. Um, we also really like thinking then of these eminent musicians as creativity outliers. It's possible that by looking at each of their brains, we can see what's unique about them and that uniqueness is what's contributing to their creativity. At the same time, there's obviously a lot of challenges too. Um, before the pandemic started, this was when we were doing a lot of our testing, and these were touring busy musicians, and we could only catch them when they were coming to San Francisco. And so scheduling was really hard as the fMRI scanner was very busy and these musicians were very busy. Uh, we also had a hard time to do recruitment to get these musicians with their busy schedules interested in doing the project. So we would rely on several artistic agencies like SF Jazz, the Kennedy Center, etc. to link us up with these musicians managers. We also use news agencies like Wired Magazine or others to help us um, connect with these artists and help them get interested in the science. That being said, despite all the challenges, we have managed to recruit several case studies of eminent musicians. For our first case study, we studied Gabrielle Montero. She is a famed Venezuelan classical pianist, and she does both classical concerts as well as improvisations. We're going to return to her data soon in a minute. We've also tested Matthew Whitaker, who is a blind jazz prodigy, currently studying at Juilliard. We've also tested Fantastic Negrito, who is a Grammy award-winning blues lyricist and singer. We've tested Esperanza Spalding, jazz superstar. Uh, we've tested Zakir Hussein, who is a um, foremost tabla player in the world, performing improvisations of Indian percussion instruments. We've tested Solomon Howard, who is an opera singer, who is also able to improvise in the jazz and gospel style. We've tested Shockwave, who is a beatboxer, who was on Broadway as part of Freestyle Love Supreme with Lynn Banro Miranda. And finally, we tested Colin Mockery, who is the famed comedic improviser from Whose Line Is It Anyways? In addition to being a comedic improviser, he also musically improvises for us by singing and altering lyrics on the fly. So by studying each artist as a unique data point, as I said, we're able to tailor our experimental tasks. And we think that by looking at individual artists, we can get insight into how their brains might be really different. So let's delve into some of these case studies. 
And I'm gonna go ahead and start off with Gabriela Montero. Gabriela Montero is a classical musician and she was a piano prodigy. Uh, and this is her performing a concerto at a very young age. Now, if any of you are classical musicians, you'll know that actually in the classical music world, it's very unusual for classical musicians to improvise, but that's exactly what Gabriella does. She tours and performs half of her concerts, which feature concert classical music repertoire. And then the second half of her concerts, she takes audience requests and then she improvises. So here's a video of her improvising. So this is a little jingle bells. So we were incredibly excited to work with her because there's really no one else like her. I mean, I grew up in the classical music world and it's uh, very unique to find someone who's so good at improvising yet also has the ability to really play classical music to such a high degree at the same time. Now, what do we find with her results? For her, what we did is for the control condition, she played a Bach minuet over and over again for the memorized condition or the control condition. Then for the experimental or improvisation condition, we were told to just have her improvise in that same style. And what we found is that for her, improvisation as opposed to control condition is really um, a whole body or rather whole brain, sorry, whole brain experience. What you see here are her results. And it's really about activation rather than the deactivation of structures. We see activation shown here in red, and again, deactivation is shown in blue. And what you see from what is that for Gabriela Montero, improvisation engages pretty much every single system of the brain. You see motor, premotor areas involved. You see the auditory areas involved. You can see that the visual occipital areas are involved. You have frontal areas involved. You also have limbic structures involved and those are involved in emotion processing. And you also have parietal or sensory areas involved. So for Gabriella, improvisation is in a total brain um, multimodal experience. Now we don't know if that's because Gabriella is a classically trained improviser or if it's just because she's Gabriella Montero, but this is why we think it's important that we too take a case study approach. She is very different from any of the other musicians we've ever tested before in our lab. 
Now to move on to a musician that's completely different from Gabriella, I want to introduce Matthew Whitaker. Matthew is also a jazz, as a, also a prodigy, but a jazz prodigy, and he's also blind. He's currently studying at Juilliard. And he first found us through the Kennedy Center and came to us in 2018 to be tested in our experiment. We've actually seen him several times, but here's a video talking about his experience with uh, scanning at UCSF. Matthew Whitaker, and I am a musician. Uh, I am 17 years old, and I am also uh, visually impaired. So today we want to see what's happening in Matthew's brain while he's doing a variety of things. One was playing a blues, and one was playing a song that he'll play for the Kennedy Center tonight, and another was listening to music that he liked, and maybe listening to something that wasn't as interesting. And lastly, he's having a musical conversation with another musician to see what's happening when two players have a dialogue together, sort of a wordless conversation that's uh, just based on music. The entire time, you're going to be in the scanner room. We're going to be in the control room about maybe 10 feet away from you, but separated by a glass window and a door. Is it like a recording studio? It's sort of like a recording studio. So the goal is to understand the neural underpinnings for something as complex, wonderful, and mysterious as music. I mean, we have a lot of scientific knowledge about how the world works, but relatively little knowledge about how the brain enables the arts. Art has been around throughout eternity. As long as there's been humans, there have been art. Every culture, every historical epoch, there's always been art. And so what I'm trying to understand is how can we use the arts to sort of unravel this complex neural circuitry that gives rise to new ideas? Technology, you know, has come really far, you know. I like how it's just kind of analyzed right, musically what, what I was, you know, thinking of. And um, I wonder, you know, what the results will be. In the end, it seems that humans are hardwired to create. And that may be linked to how humans actually survive. So as I said, um, Matthew has come into our lab several times, and but today I'm just going to show you one of the paradigms that we did with him. And essentially what we did is we had him, for the control condition, listen to something that he finds very boring. And then for the experimental condition, we had him listen to something he finds interesting. Now, for the boring condition, you might notice this, or maybe know what this is, but we played him a monologue from Ferris Bueller's Day Off. So this is the boring condition. You just have to listen to this very boring snippet. I'm going to play you this example. In 1930, the Republican-controlled House of Representatives, in an effort to alleviate the effects of the, anyone, anyone, the Great Depression, passed the, anyone, anyone, a tariff bill, the Hawley-Smoot Tariff Act, which anyone raised or lowered, raised tariffs in an effort to collect more revenue for the federal government. Did it work? Anyone? Anyone know the effects? It did not work, and the United States sank deeper into the Great Depression. Today, we have a similar debate over this. Anyone know? I think I found myself kind of tuning out over there <laughs> as I was listening to that as well. So here's what Matthew's brain was doing while he was listening to something boring. 
Uh, you can see, not surprising, again, this is activation of the brain, and you see it has his auditory cortex lighting up because he's listening to something. He also has his left lateral prefrontal cortex lighting up because he's listening to language. And he has his medial prefrontal cortex activating, possibly because he's zoning out. Now, interestingly here, his visual cortex, the occipital area, has absolutely no activity. And that's because, as I've mentioned, uh, uh, Matthew is blind, so there's no activity there whatsoever. Now, for the control condition, he got, or sorry, for the experimental condition, Matthew got to listen to Snarky Puppy, which is his favorite band. So he told us this was his favorite band. So for the experimental condition, he got to listen to an excerpt of Snarky Puppy. So this is the excerpt he listened to. when he's listening to things he enjoys. Well, this was his brain when he was listening to the boring thing. And now this is music and music stimulation Matthew's entire brain. And what's really interesting here is his visual cortex which previously showed no activity whatsoever. His visual cortex is actually being used for music, which is so cool. We often see in cases of people where they have, have um, a sensory uh, system that's not being used, it will get recruited for something. And we see here, Matthew's entire brain is being stimulated by music and his visual cortex is being recruited to listen to music, which we find very, very cool. As I said, this is only one paradigm of several that we've done with Matthew and the rest are being currently being analyzed, but this is very cool. And we love working with Matthew as a case study. So if you want to learn more about Matthew and his really, really interesting story, he was recently featured in um, a 60 Minutes episode, which talks about his journey in music, as well as what it was like to work with us and to be scanned um, in, be in our scientific study. Now I want to work, move on to our third case study, uh, Fantastic Negrito, who's a completely different um, case study and musician compared to both Gabriella and Matthew. And Fantastic Negrito is a two-time Grammy Award winner. He has a really interesting story in that he had a career, a pretty blossoming career in music, but then he left it because he was getting not only tired of the music career, but and jaded with it. But when he left, he also got in a very traumatizing car accident that created a lot of brain damage. And so he took quite a break from music for a while. And then only a couple years ago, did he actually get back into music? And when he got back into music, he, he found it's kind of like he's having his own renaissance, cultural renaissance, and he's won a several Grammy Award wins um, just in the last several years. He's also a local artist. If you live here in the Bay Area, he's based in East Bay. And um, I'm going to show you a music video right now. Um, this is his music uh, pushback. And you can see just the, his style of music here. Exhaust. We are innocent. 
testing Negrito, when he came to our scanner, we were able to do something very different. For the control condition, we took his hit song, The Duffler, which he knows really, really well because he performs it almost every night. And again, this was pre-pandemic. And for the control condition, he just sang The Duffler and we had the, his original backtrack and played that for him. Now for the experimental condition, we gave that same backtrack and then we had him improvise the lyrics on top of it. So here's him performing this task in the scanner. Now, interestingly, here in this video, you can see that Fantastic Grito is bopping his feet. Um, but don't worry, he actually was able to keep his head still enough that we got really great images in the fMRI scanner. Uh, we generally do try to tell the musicians to stay really still. The beauty of this paradigm is they can play piano or sing or whatever while staying still enough that we get good images. Um, now, uh, Fantastic Negrito came to us because uh, Wired Magazine was running a story on him and they wanted to see what was happening in his brain while he was doing uh, his improvisation work. And so if you want to see more about him, you can see the Wired Magazine story, but I'm just going to show you the results now from this uh, paradigm that I just showed you. So we'll watch this video. The areas of process sensory and motor skills, along with sounds, lit up. You can see them here, red and yellow. Makes sense, right? But here's the really interesting part. Lim asked him to improvise to see what happens when he's creating something totally original. Now watch what happens to his brain. The areas that were active before, the ones that deal with motor skills and sounds, are even more active. But see how there's way more blue in the front of his brain? That's the prefrontal cortex, and it's associated with effortful planning and conscious self-monitoring. And it's blue because it's less active. So again, these are just preliminary results. We're still going over the rest of the data as well as the rest of the paradigms we went over with him. But uh, something that we also did, as I told you, is we were doing cognitive assessments as well. And because these are very busy musicians, sometimes we have to uh, do cognitive testing in a separate um, test session. So what we did here is, uh, Fantastic Negrito has a recording studio in Oakland. So these are pictures of me going to his recording studio in Oakland and doing the assessments with him the day before he was about to head off to tour in South America. So again, this was during, before the pandemic, we did a lot of this testing before the pandemic shut us down. So first off, so some takeaway messages just about research. We can measure the creative brain in real time. Improvisation is proving to be a very rich model for studying the neurocorrelates of musical creativity. And as we showed in that kid study, which I affectionately call Piano Kids, you do not need to be a professional artist to be creative. Um, you can use scientific rigor to study improvisation. With some creativity from us scientific researchers, neural imaging, like fMRI, is proving to be a useful technique to understand the biological basis of artistic creativity. 
As you've seen, uh, our research keeps giving us new ways to understand how music is processed in the brain. And the better we understand the neural mechanisms of creativity, maybe eventually we can harness some of that and to, be, to harness the power of creativity. For example, maybe in the future we can create interventions so that we can use creativity to train cognitive mechanisms to improve our brains. But we really are still at the beginning of this research field. There's still very much we don't know about the neural substrates of musical improvisation or creativity in general. But if you do want to know, um, if you want to know more about new resources about music and the brain, which falls under the subcategory of music and health, I want to let you know about the Sound Health Network. As you might remember from our course objectives, our last course objective was to know where to find resources about music and health and well-being. The Sound Health Network is a partnership of the National Endowment for the Arts with the University of California, San Francisco, in collaboration with the National Institutes of Health, the Kennedy Center for the Performing Arts and Opera Superstar Renee Fleming. The mission of the Sound Health Network is to promote research and public awareness about the impact of music and health. We just at UCSF have a grant from the National Endowment for the Arts to develop the Sound Health Network. And this is our team currently here at UCSF. Just this um, year, so only a couple months ago, we launched the Sound Health Network. And if you go to our website, which I'm gonna show you on a slide in a second, you can still watch this video of the launch. During the launch, we featured NIH Director Francis Collins, as well as people like Sunil Iyengar, who's the Director of Research at the National Endowment for the Arts, and people like opera superstar Renee Fleming, as well as Sanjay Gupta and others, who discussed the origin of the Sound Health Network, as well as why we think it's important now to have something like the Sound Health Network. And you can also, at the Sound Health Network website, see all the different type of research um, that's happening within the field. Charles and I are one of many, many research labs doing work in this field. So here are some of the resources that the Sound Health Network um, offers. As I said, the National Endowment for the Arts has a grant to have us continue developing um, the Sound Health Network. As of now, we've developed the network website, which is soundhealth.ucsf.edu. We have a directory of network participants. So if you're interested in learning more about music and health and well-being, please add um, your profile to this directory of networked um, participants. We offer consultation and logistical support to researchers and other people who are interested in getting into sound health. Currently, the Sound Health Network consists of um, musicians and artists and doctors and clinicians and researchers, a whole bunch of people. At our Sound Health website, you can see tabs where we have news and events that are coming up. We currently have a clearinghouse of journal articles all pertaining to music and health and uh, research in that field. We post funding opportunities currently related to research grants um, related to music and health. We also put out a monthly newsletter um, that keeps up to date on anything that's related to music and health. And we're working on a virtual networking platform, which will hopefully come out in the next year or so, so that if people are looking for collaborators or a place to hang out where you can talk about sound and health issues, this will be where you can go. Something we've launched this year is a monthly webinar and journal club series, which has different topics each month. So for example, this year we've talked about music therapy and cancer symptom management or child, um, children and brain development in music. So please go ahead and sign up for our webinar and journal club series. And of course, please find us on social media on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube.
So thank you again for all of your attention. I want to thank the National Endowment for the Arts for funding our research lab, as well as the Sound Health Network. And of course, I want to thank Charles Lim, my mentor and the PI of our lab, as well as my lab mates who have helped on this research, as well as all our wonderful collaborators. And I think that's it for my talk. Thank you again. Thank you, Dr. Barrett. That was a really immersive presentation. And I also want to open it up for questions and answers. I don't think we um, have some right now, but maybe I'll start off with my own question. <laughs> you know, when I was watching all the videos, I couldn't help but like bob my head when watching it. And I, I was wondering, um, have you and Dr. Lim ever gotten hooked up uh, <laughs> while watching others, you know, like yeah. to see, you know, like what happens when we feel just connected to a musician, um, mm -hmm. especially during the pandemic, I feel like we really need connection. Yes, that's a really good question. So we have not, we have not yet tried to look at what happens to us when we're listening to these wonderful musicians. Um, something that we we can though, there is certainly that capability. So there are certain fMRI machines where you can scan two people at the same time. So you have what's called fMRI machines in parallel. I think they have one at Stanford and maybe some other facilities, but you have a person in a scanner and another person and you can do, I think up to three people at the same time. So that's certainly a capability. Something that people often do too, which is not so much fMRI, but they actually have it in um, EEG. So you can wear an EEG. So that's kind of a different from fMRI. You basically wear this like cap. It looks like a swim cap <laughs> and you have EEG scalp electrodes and they measure brain waves. Um, and so you can have, that's a really way, good way to measure like uh, how, how you're reacting to someone too. So we haven't done that, but that is certainly a really good question because I think that's really what makes music so powerful, especially during the pandemic is that music has this ability con to connect to us. And that's why I think it's really powerful. Um, but yeah, that's a very great question. So thank you, Selena. Thank you. Um, and I guess just following up on that, are there differences when people connect to music through Zoom or? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, now that's an interesting question. I don't know. I think so. There's a bunch of research that's been taking place during this pandemic right now, right here. Like there's been a rush of, of music research now trying to understand whether there's the, what the impact of the pandemic has had on our music, um, intake of music, things like that. If it has, the research hasn't come out yet. Like I've been, I am the scientific analyst for the Sound Health Network. So I am the one reading all the papers and I'm trying to keep up to date on the research. And I haven't seen anything like that come out, but I wouldn't be surprised. What has been the biggest challenge so far that musicians are actively trying to tackle is like, how do you like synchronize your ensemble together, right? If all the musicians are in different places, that has been the hardest thing. Now, obviously you've probably seen some of those YouTube videos and stuff like where a person records their part, a person records their part, and then you put them all together in a montage. Um, that has been awesome. But yeah, so far, I don't think there's been much so far. Um, I don't think there's been so much on, uh, how you how that really affects um, taking in music through Zoom so far. But I don't think it's quite the same as being live. I mean, that's just my own, I don't have scientific data on that yet, but I think all from just from the anecdotal evidence talking with musicians, I think many of us feel like there's a lot lacking from this live experience of music compared to the digital experience. But again, that's not my scientific opinion. That's just my personal opinion. Yeah, I, I so appreciate you sharing that. And I feel like there's never been a time in our 
whole history where our mind and body is so disconnected, you know, over Zoom. Yeah. <laughs> We're just like, I know. A bunch of floating I, heads. So um, yeah, for that. But we do have uh, one question. Um, Anne asks, uh, could you say something about the relationship of music to treatment of Alzheimer's? Or, you know, like I just, she was just kind of wondering about that. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. Um, there is a lot of work right now on music being not only being treated for Alzheimer and also mild cognitive impairment, which is the pre the pre stage before Alzheimer's. Um, they're finding that music has this very unique tie to memory. And if you're really interested in, in learning about this topic, I highly recommend this documentary called Alive Inside. It's um, and the Music and Memory Project, also known as the iPod Project. Um, so far, the N National Institute of Aging is funding a project looking at how music and memory can be treated, um, can be helping people with senility, with Alzheimer and memory problems. And so far, what we're saying is that for a lot of people who lose that kind of cognitive element, being who lose their memory, music, especially music with its very strong ties to memory to the, this, this time before they lost their memory can kind of bring them back into themselves. So I'm not quite an expert in this field on Alzheimer's and um, music and memory, but it is definitely something that's being researched right now. I happen to know that the National Institute of Aging is funding projects in it right now. So yes, um, it is definitely a treatment. Music is being used as a medical treatment for Alzheimer's and or at least being researched to hopefully be used for treating Alzheimer's and other memory impairments. Mm -hmm. uh, so Corey asks, for the adults versus child um, analysis, have any trained or a prodigy children have been part of the research? Have they been part of research yet? Have we tested any child prodigies? Like as they're being, no, that's a really great question. And that would be a really great follow-up study. That's such a wonderful question. We have not tested any child prodigies and I would absolutely love to. Um, I will say something about this with the piano kids. Um, so it was actually really hard to recruit child um, children for our study. I actually had to blast the entire SF public school system and still barely got enough subjects. I then eventually reached out to the homeschooling network as well. It was actually pretty hard to um, get enough subjects to participate. But yes, if it's a jazz prodigy, I think what I, I would love to do that as a follow-up study or as case study, that's a really wonderful idea. And I think, yes, I would probably reach out to um, arts management's um, you know, um, agencies to try to help me do that. But that's a wonderful idea. And I'm, I'd be really interesting to see what their brains are doing because they're not only have the developmental you know, aspect of their brains are still maturing, but they also have that prodigious musical talent. So who knows what we'd see in their brains. Yeah, I think that's a great idea. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so someone asked, can you say more about the phenomenon of recruitment of brain mm -hmm. areas, like the yeah. example of the blind gentleman uh, mm -hmm. visual cortex lighting up? Yeah. Yeah. So oftentimes when someone loses a, um, a sensory system, so let's say you go blind, right? So normally, like your visual cortex would be used for sight, right? But when you and when you use your brain space is so so precious in the, the right that's it's very precious real estate in the brain. So oftentimes, if someone goes blind and, and you know that area of the brain that would normally be used be used for vision, it goes it would be recruited to be used for some other thing. So maybe it's for touch or something else, and that's pretty classic in a lot of cases for people who have lost some sort of sensory function. Now, what we think is really interesting for for Matthew is that. Um, 
his was almost selective though. <laughs> like he didn't use his visual cortex for something he deems boring. He used it specifically for music. And again, this is a functional like task, but that was what we found really interesting. Now, I also wanna say something specific about Matthew. Um, when we do these uh, group tasks, like when we're averaging a bunch of group data, so this is just something in general about group tasks of fMRI or EEG, you try to get group subjects that are usually, um, one of the inclusion criteria for doing a group fMRI my study is usually uh, no cognitive impairment, no neurological impairment. It used to even be back in the old days, it was all, you know, right-handed males, things like that. Only simply because you wanted to make sure that any brain differences you saw were strictly due to your, your task, experimental tasks, and not due to anything else, right? So, um, so in the old days, the left hand brain, the, the male brain was like the stereotypical brain. So you always said, I'm only going to do males who are right handed, right? So now we know that the, we don't just use males as our stereotypical brain. We now do both male and female or et cetera. And, but I will say that in general, we wouldn't necessarily put Matthew in the same category with Gabriella. Not only is there age differences, but also just because he is blind. So we wouldn't know if his brain would look completely the same as Gabriella's. Same with fantastic. Negrito, because he had a traumatizing brain accident, we wouldn't lump his data necessarily with Gabrielle and some of our other musicians. And so the beauty of this case study approach is that it lets us look at their data when we wouldn't necessarily be able to include them normally in part of our group comparisons, if that makes sense. Yeah, thank you, Dr. Barrett. I, I was mm -hmm. even just wondering, does Matthew in that process of improv, does he say he can kind of see internally, you know, like the music or? I've naturally never asked him. So um, how he learns music is he started with his, his pianist, um, piano teacher, and he learned just by ear. And then now that he's at Juilliard, he learns through Braille. So he's learning both ways. He has primarily done it through ear and now learning through Braille. I don't actually know whether what he sees. That's a really good interview question. Something we're thinking of adding to our case studies is some semi-structured interviews and like asking them about their musical process. So I don't really know what he thinks of when he's improvising. Wonderful. Yeah. And there's just another comment here about being blown away by a recent film called The Sound of Metal. I don't know if you've heard of that. And curious about musicians who experience hearing loss and what happens to their brain. So, well, that, um, I have not actually heard, uh, seen that movie, although I feel that sounds really familiar. I feel like several people have talked about it to me, so I really do need to watch it. But one of Charles Lim's other research areas, we do study music perception and cochlear implant users. And I don't know if you know what cochlear implants are, but they're essentially implants that are put in uh, for people who are pretty much deaf and they help restore hearing. Now we don't can't do fMRI in people who have cochlear implants simply because the implant itself is metal, and so we can't do that. But we so we're not really sure exactly what's happening to the brain their brains um, when they have the cochlear implant. Um, but we do know in terms of perception that yes, their experience of music is different. In fact, cochlear implant users report that they really hate listening to music, which is really sad. Even if you were a musician and you were used to listening to a ton of music and you loved music, and then suddenly you have this cochlear implant and you don't like it, that's really sad. And part of the reason is that, um, as you saw from that video on hearing, we actually have thousands of hair cells that represent our hearing and allow us to hear the many, many notes of a piano or the many, many pitches of music. 
But what happens with um, a, a cochlear implant is you only get 12 electrodes, 12 electrodes to replace all your hearing compared to thousands and thousands of hair cells. So they can't just, they just can't represent the same fidelity, like what you would hear, you know, with your actual ears. And so it's not surprising that music perception is not very good in cochlear, implant, in cochlear implants. Speech perception is remarkable. So if you think about the fact that these were deaf individuals who can suddenly now hear speech, that's remarkable, but they still can't hear music very well. And so we have had reports that music is not very well. Things like rhythm are, are still preserved pretty well, but not pitch. Um, and so we don't exactly know what music sounds like to a cochlear implant user, but it doesn't sound good that we know. Um, and we don't know exactly what's going on in their brains um, just because we can't really stick them into a scanner. But that is a good question. Yeah, and we have someone uh, sharing a personal account that mm. I really appreciate that um, personal thing. And so my mother died of Alzheimer's, but she could mm. still sing. Yeah. Um, I have Alzheimer's now and mm -hmm. I'm having a very slow progression. Do mm. you think it could be from singing from my whole life? Like, was it protective? Yeah, so that's a really interesting um Personal, well, thank you so much for sharing that personal account. And I think that's a really interesting thing. Something that we have found in music cognition is that music can protect against a lot of cognitive decline, actually. So we know that there is age-related cognitive decline for all of us. So I can't necessarily speak for Alzheimer's per se, um, but in general, all of us will have some cognitive decline, decline in memory, decline in logic and reasoning and processing speed. But something we have found is that if you have musical training or even let's say singing regularly, we do find that it um, protects your brain against some of the cognitive decline in memory. So I can't say exactly to your own personal case, but I, I, I would say don't stop singing. <laughs> and something, as we said, um, when I was mentioning Alive Inside, and I, there's this really powerful story there about this man who is really, he has a very strong case of senility, you know, can barely remember what happened that day, is pretty non-responsive most of the time. But then all of a sudden, if you play him his favorite song, he literally comes alive and he's suddenly very fluid in his words, can describe exactly where he was, how much he loved music. And they're really starting to harness this power of music to tap into these decade old long memories and bring people back to themselves. So I highly recommend this movie. It used to be on Netflix. Maybe it's on Amazon Prime now. I'm not quite sure. But I do think music has a privileged um, position in our memory. So there's even people kind of call it that they're playing our song phenomenon, just like we can when say, for example, you heard the song that someone played that you danced your first dance to at your your wedding, even if it was a 50 years ago, it evokes these very strong memories, right? So music evokes really strong memories because it has this very privileged tie to your memory. So to you, I would say definitely keep singing and 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 there is some some evidence that music engagement with music musical training does protect against some cognitive decline. Mm -hmm. And just following up to that question, is there mm -hmm. a difference between like the classically trained versus improv in, in, in that kind of protection, you know, one is putting very things, everything in the box, you know, to mm -hmm, be mm -hmm. kind of a checklist of perfection and the other mm -hmm. one um, just being in kind of like in the moment. <laughs> yeah, you know, I don't think many people have exactly looked at the differences in genres. 
Um, but I do think that any sort of musical training is important because I think what makes musical training or musical engagement really powerful is that it's so, um, it involves so many things. You have reading the music, you have motor movements, you have memory because you have to remember what you just did and what you have to do next. There's pattern recognition, there's emotion. Just the fact that you're doing so much improvising, you know, for everyone thinking that it's like, oh, it just comes out so magically. People who are improvisers practice a lot. The reason improvisation could come out so fluidly is that they have all the schemas and licks underneath their fingers already and it just comes out when they need it so i think i don't can't say exactly in terms of classical versus jazz versus other domains but i think any sort of musical training because i don't think people have parsed it out to that specific specific kind of um specificity yet but i do think any sort of engagement with music would be good just because it is so multi-dimensional and this is why we think music has been i study music cognition um and that's like I study the music in the brain. And this is why we think music is like this perfect system to study its impact on the brain because it's so multimodal and because it literally has so many processes to it that are really good for the brain. Yeah, I so resonate with what you say, especially um, in my work in integrative medicine. I feel mm -hmm. like the whole is always more than the sum of the parts. You exactly, know? And, yeah. Um, that, that's something that if you're introduced early, it's much easier than like language and learning mm -hmm. Rosetta Stone. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And I mean, I think the reason music is also powerful is it feels good, right? It's like it, we enjoy it like naturally. And I, there's so much research that shows as I saw and even in our improvisation work is that music activates the limbic system it gives the reward system so yes i definitely think it's a form of mindfulness actually it is right into the moment so yeah um, and and that's kind of what the lim and braun are articles right that the 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 combination of the deactivation of the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex and the activation of the medial prefrontal cortex that that entry into flow i think that flow state is both for arts and probably meditation and presence of everything like if you enter flow you are in that heightened state of enjoyment focus you know optimal state of just being in the zone and on top of the live inside, I just want to bring up um, if you've ever seen Coco, that's like a really mm -hmm. uh, sweet um, movie about like music reminiscence. And mm -hmm. also the newest movie is Soul. It mm -hmm. talks about flow state as well. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. um, someone asks, they're really curious about what led you to studying and working in this very interesting area of research. That's a really great question. So I, I think Selena mentioned, I started piano when I was five. Um, my parents are scientists, but we always had music in the house. And so when I went to college, I, I at the time was a really serious classical pianist and I really wanted to do music, had considered going to conservatory, but at the same time was really, I, I also just really liked science at the same time. So at Wellesley College, I did a double major in music and neuroscience because I couldn't decide what I wanted to do. So I did both. And then when I, fin when I finished that, I wasn't sure what to do, but what I really felt is like, I still hadn't had time to really focus on my instrument. And I was like, well, what if I really do want to go for that concert pianist, you know, concertos and, you know, do that whole, the whole thing. So after that, I went and did my master's at Peabody and I really just wanted that time to immerse myself into my instrument. And I loved it. I um, got at, at Peabody, I did my master's in, in um, music, musicology, which is music history, as well as piano performance. And I loved it 12 hours a day, you know, just chamber music and piano duo and performing. And I met my husband there because he was a cellist and like, it was just the music world and it was fantastic. But in the end, I decided as much as I had been doing music my whole life, 20 something years at that, um, it wasn't for me because I'm a morning person. <laughs> 
and they always perform at night. So I always felt like I was trying to work at like my worst time. So if they let me perform at 9 a.m., that'd be a different story. But so then I was like, okay, well, I'm at a crossroads. What do I do now? And right about then, I was like, I wonder if I could combine my love of music and neuroscience. And so I started Googling around and I realized, oh, there's this new field of music cognition. And so then I applied to do the PhD in music cognition, which was actually in the music department. Um, it was officially music theory and cognition because while there was this field of music cognition, they weren't really act, like trying to advertise for music cognition specialists. You still had to be like in a music theory department teaching music theory pedagogy or music theory to musicians. Um, but at the same time, I was still really interested in this whole auditory neuroscience, like what happens to your brain when you train in music? Like, can you train your brain to neuroplasticity? Can your brain change because you've done music training or engaged with music? So I was working in um, Nina Krauss's auditory neuroscience lab at the same time. And so I kind of just kind of did it because I've always loved science and music and I didn't want to give either one of them up. And then when I finished my PhD, I had been friends with Charles Lim I, that whole time, like because I'd gone to Peabody and he was at Johns Hopkins. And because we were just friends the whole time, after my PhD, I said, hey, what are you doing? And we kept in touch. He's like, do you want to do a postdoc with me? I said, sure. And then he was moving to San Francisco and we followed him. <laughs> so it kind of all happened naturally. And I really love what I do now because while I love music theory and I love teaching music theory and being in music departments, I really love the translational aspect of this research, like taking what we learn from music and health research and figuring out a way to hopefully use it to help patients and to use it to maybe eventually improve creativity, improve memory for people with, you know, you know, problems with memory, or, you know, find ways to translate it. And the Sound Health Network is a great way to disseminate that information out to people. So I love the translational aspect. And that's why I feel like UCSF has been a really great place for me. And I still feel like I get the balance because I'm doing that kind of translational research with Charles here at UCSF, but I'm also still teaching. I teach music in the brain at San Francisco Conservatory. So I still have that musical element too. So it's been, that's, it's been a long journey, but it's mostly because I can't give it up. So I still do both. <laughs> I think that's bringing in like more and more perspectives, you know, having, you can fully empathize, you know, there's yeah. something about um, being in that kind of position versus uh, never having had that training before. Yeah. yeah. And I actually think it's really important. Something we're finding with the Sound Health Network is that the reason we started the Sound Health Network, and you'll see this in the launch, is that we've all been doing our own thing. Musicians are off in this corner. Doctors are off in this corner. Researchers are off in this corner. No one's talking to each other. And because I'm someone who has sat in both worlds, I kind of understand why. Musicians have their own language of speaking and scientists have their own way of speaking. And because I've always had to sit in between, I hear the, the kind of conflicts in how they talk. A scientist would be like, well, we should do this. And you know, original music lab studies were like, beep, 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 boop, boop. You know, it's very unmusical stimuli, but very scientifically rigorous, right? And then musicians are over here going, no, that sounds not like music. But scientists are like, but I controlled it, right? And so it's like managing to find a compromise between what sounds musical but what is scientifically rigorous and I think part of that's why I feel like we need these dialogues and part of the reason Charles and I get along is that we are both polymaths we have the both the artistic musical side as well as the scientific side and it's always hard trying to find a way to balance the artistic what is of artistic and musical interest but also what is still scientifically rigorous but this is why we have the sound health network it's why we're trying to promote more crosstalk because we need artists and musicians to buy into this work to give us their ideas so that scientists can help design better experiments so that we make progress in this field. And so I, I'm very hopeful now that we have the Sound Health Network. <laughs>
Yeah, I appreciate you expanding the language. It resonates mm -hmm. with integrative medicine as well, because sometimes like the pure scientific objective um, mm -hmm. forms of study don't really fit into whole healing paradigms, you know, so yeah. kind of like personalized, modified research methods. So yeah, it's like, oh, 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 go ahead. Yeah. Oh, yeah, it's like, it's very, if you, if you study it the way a very biomedical approach to it, it makes sense with certain paradigms in science, but I'm like, but music is music. It's also cultural. It's like, we can't just study it as scientists. We need to remember that music is an art form too. And so it, it is a very different thing to try to navigate. So yes, absolutely. Yeah. Similar to like Chinese medicine, you know, studying yeah. one part could be mm -hmm. really different than how like the compounds synergistically work together. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So. Um, I wanted to say, Corey says that years ago, they read a book, This Is Your Brain on Music, and mm -hmm. always wish that there would be an audiobook uh, with the examples <laughs> included. So really loved your talk and just glad that there's funding that mm -hmm. kind of uh, continues this work. It was really important work. Yeah, and that's actually a very new development. The Sound Health Network um, and the funding for this work is a very new thing. And that's really because Renee Fleming and Francis Collins of the NIH pushed for it. So they recently did the Sound Health Network funds, which is just in the last couple of years, which is wonderful. Up until now, all of us have just been kind of cobbling funding together wherever we could. I mean, this field is less than 20 years old in general music cognition. So we were all just doing catch as catch can. And so we're all thrilled to hear that there's actually trying to be an official attempt to, to have funding mechanisms so that we can do this. So yes, thank you, Corey. We're really happy to. <laughs> Yeah, and I, I just wanted to also ask, because unless anyone has any more questions, you can add them more and the Oh, here's another one. Um, if improvisation is connected to the deactivation of the limbic part of the brain and the limbic brain is related to enjoyment, how does that work? One would think that enjoyment and the limbic brain would light up in improvisation for creative musicians. Yeah, so, so there's been some debate in this because actually that whole the limbic system's involvement is um, something I didn't get to go into today is that I only showed you our research labs work, there are other labs working on this. And there's been a lot of debate because some some labs show activation and some so deactivation. And so here's what people are trying to figure out in the field. And the reason being is that all of us are using different types of musicians, amateurs versus experts, um, different types of paradigms, larger keyboards versus button pads. We're also using different parameters. You get to have freely improvised versus you have a very constrained kind of improvisation task. So really all the different, <laughs> uh, the reason we're seeing different findings is I think because of all the different variation in the expression. Now, as for the limbic system, whether it's activated or deactivated, some of them people think it might be expertise related, like whether or not this, um, it could be efficiency. Like an improv improviser, sometimes what we see is not always just activation or increased connectivity because sometimes it's just about being efficient. Like an expert improviser doesn't always need so much part of their brain to be used towards something because they're so well trained, they don't need to anymore. So again, this is still kind of under debate because everyone is finding somewhat different, um, different findings. Something I will say that has been kind of um, hit consensus by now, I would say, now people who study network systems is that in general, we have activation of the default mode networks. That's kind of, which is basically this idea that things that are involved in mind wandering and uh, the stuff that at rest is necessary so that you generate ideas. And then the executive network is evaluating those, you know, evaluating. So there are certain networks at play that seem to be involved in improvising, but it is still basically under, um, under investigation because people are doing it so differently. So good question, Anne. 
Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, on that note, I'm even wondering um, with Colin Mockery, I used to mm -hmm. watch Whose Line Is It Anyway all the time. Mm -hmm. He's mm -hmm. an expert improviser, you know. Yes. yes. And he has a dynamic with Ryan Stiles too that like mm -hmm. practice mm -hmm. their improvisation. So I'm wondering um, if you could speak on that. Like, or Yeah. So what we did, um, Colin Mockery, he's more of a comedic improviser, but because he was willing to do our study, we treated him as a case study. And what we did is a paradigm where for the musical portion, at least, we gave him nursery rhymes, like Mary had a little lamb and things like that. And the control condition is things like say Mary had a little lamb. And then the improvisation thing is, okay, here's the backtrack still, now make up new lyrics. <laughs> to Mary on the spot. He was such a, he was so good at it though. He was able to do it right then and there because he's such an experienced improviser. So that was one of the paradigms. I will say I've not yet had a chance to look at his data yet. So I don't know what his brain looks like. Um, but yeah, that is one of the paradigms. So that was one of the musical paradigms. And then we did several comedic um, paradigms like improvise a monologue versus memorize something. It gives like a memorized monologue, like a Shakespeare monologue versus improvise something on a prompt we give you. So you don't even know what the prompt is. And then here's the prompt, now say something. So yeah, he has, um, he was wonderful. He could do it all just on the fly, as you can expect. Um, he said the experience was very different because as you, as you can, I think the hardest part for him is on the show and uh, well, with a lot of performances, they do riff off each other a lot. And he said the hardest part was not having an audience because I think they feed off the laughs and the audience and the audience engagement. So doing it in a scanner was very mm, sterile, I feel like compared to normal. So that's obviously, <laughs> that is obviously part of the challenge of doing science and comedy in, science, in, in a scanner, but he still was able to do it beautifully. So yeah, and um, his, some of his data, there's a, um, a documentary coming out on Colin Mockery and that's why he contacted us to do some scanning with him. So hopefully some of that will be out and hopefully I will get to analyzing his data and hopefully get some of that data out soon too. Yeah, I don't know if I'm <laughs> one of his colleagues, Wayne Brady, you know yes actually we were we were in conversation Wayne Brady was actually scheduled we had him scheduled to come into the scanner because Wayne Brady is also something who can do both comedic and musical improvisation so he was scheduled and then just as he was about to do scanning he had to cancel because he was showing up for Good Morning America Okay. So again, so this is this is again some of the scheduling challenges we are working on. Hopefully, we will get him in at another time. But he was scheduled, both Wayne Brady and uh, Colin Mockery. So we're working on it. Especially again, once the pandemic ends, a lot of this is on hold right now. That makes sense. Yeah, and uh, I'm just even wondering, you know, for folks who really love staying in the box uh, versus mm -hmm. people who really love not having plans and stuff, mm -hmm. probably adaptive in the pandemic, like how, um, how does that affect your brain? Yeah, so I have to admit, like, I'm someone, for example, who is very measured. And I, I think I you mentioned before, too, I'm not someone who likes to improvise a lot. Um, and I still think that so this is so let's talk just about music for a second. I think we keep saying like that jazz musicians or this kind of genres where you can improvise are ways of being musically creative. But I think the thing to remember is that classical musicians, what we keep saying is the control condition where you have something pre-memorized or pre-learned, that is very creative. Our control condition is already incredibly creative because you have to perform a piece of music. So I think something we need to remember is that classical musicians are still highly creative. You can be very expressive in your timing, your dynamics, your performance, your interpretation of the music. You're never truly inside the box because even if you're given a score and you're playing it to perfection right you are still an interpreter 
turning it, giving your own spin and your own voice. So I think something to remember too, is our troll condition is called more rope. It's still hard and classical musicians are still creative. Um, now talking about this thing about improvisation, right? In general, this pandemic, I've had a lot of debates on this with my um, uh, speechless who are our collaborators and Second City, the improvisation troops that we collaborate with for our comedic improviser study on the National Endowment for the Arts. And I think there is some, some sense that being able to improvise and adapt is a really important skill for resilience, particularly during this pandemic, right? I will say my friends who are improvisers, the ones I'm working with, they are handling this pandemic so much better than I am. <laughs> um, and that it is because they, it gives them a lot of flexibility. I think improvisation really trains them to just pivot very well. Um, and I, there are some papers about cognitive flexibility and how it's improved, like the cognitive flexibility is improved with some improvisation training. And so in general, yeah, I will say, I think this ability to improvise is very important as a life skill and as a cognitive skill because it allows you to be resilient. And that's certainly something why we think, Charles and I think improvisation in general, not just music, but the ability to improvise, why it's so such a fundamental skill is because if we couldn't improvise, like we wouldn't be able to talk right now. Like I'm talking to you right now without a script. If I can't improvise, I can't talk. If I can't improvise, I can't invent, right? If I can't improvise, I wouldn't be able to find a different route to the grocery store when they tell me to detour, right? So improvisation really is fundamental to our society's ability to move on. Like the pandemic has made all of us improvise. I have to improvise every day when something goes wrong with parenting, right? So like, I think, I think all of us find that improvisation, it can be elevated to works of art, like with these artists, but it's also a very fundamental ubiquitous skill for all of us as well. But it's also okay if you're not very good at it. I think what we're also showing is that it's something we can all get better at as well. Yeah, thank you for reminding us that really during the pandemic, we're all kind of building our muscle, our skill mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. uh, finding ways to adapt and and kind of the target and ball is always moving. So yes, and really good to kind of practice that, especially as planners uh, learn yes. to be more flexible. Mm -hmm. Yes, like I'm someone who's very much a planner and I've had to improvise, even though I don't always enjoy it. And I think the thing to remember again, as my improv friends tell me is that they practice improv. <laughs> like we think it's something that just comes out on stage or comes out in their skits, but everyone practices. It's not just that it's magical and talent, like you're talented at it and it comes out. They, they work very hard at it. And I think it's so important right now when we have so many rules and regulations, like mask on, like mm -hmm. different kind of habits that we're thinking so much about to have mm -hmm. um, moments of um, just letting go. Too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yep. And that's actually why we think those that that the pattern is very interesting that again that flow the ability to like turn off we kind of feel like that dorsolateral prefrontal cortex deactivation you're turning off the judgmental self-monitoring portion of your brain and increasing the medial prefrontal cortex activation to increase your self-expression your instantiation of the self right so turn off the judgment increase your own voice and that's kind of what's happening during improvisation <laughs> Yeah, we only have three minutes left. Um, I can't believe it went by so fast. Um, I guess my, my last question would be if someone wants to get involved in um, music improv, you know, like mm -hmm. they never had had experience before, do mm -hmm. you recommend certain uh, places in San Francisco or areas? Yeah, um, you know, that's a really good question. I 
don't really know. I mean, there, I think a bunch of people have taught themselves. You can learn from some basic improv books, uh, like that pentatonic scale thing I, I showed you. That's actually some basic place to start practicing is just, you know, um, that is a basic uh, beginner paradigm. Um, San Francisco Conservatory does have like a prep program, like there is some beginner skills, but uh, that's a really good question. Why don't I look up some resources and maybe I can get back to you and then maybe we can send it out to the attendees. That would be great. Yeah, well, um, I just want to thank you for a really engaging, immersive presentation. And um, I'm just so thrilled for everyone that's joined our course. And with that, I'll probably end today and I hope we'll see you in the uh, future. Course. Well, thank you very much, uh, Selena, for inviting me and hosting us. Thank you, Don and the team at Osher for handily helping us get everything set up. And thank you to all the participants for coming. I hope you enjoyed it. And thank you for having me. Take care, everyone. All right. Bye. Stay safe, everybody. <laughs> You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.